Want the reward? Do the damn work. Challenge yourself. Inspire change. Choice, not luck. What's happening, everybody? Todd Crandall from Racing for Recovery with another Ignite Euphoria podcast. And I have Mr. Tony Sharples with me today. How are you, young man? I'm great. Are you nervous? Yes. <laughs> this of course is going to be am. awesome. If uh, I wasn't nervous, I wouldn't you know, deserve to be here. Good, good point. So I told you I broke out an Aerosmith hoodie today. Uh, I was going to ask you what your favorite Aerosmith song is, so I do want to know that, but then you had mentioned you had seen them somewhere that you wanted to talk about. So give me your favorite Aerosmith song. Gosh, you know, my favorite song to play by Aerosmith is Sweet Emotion. Because you are a drummer. I love that song. Why do you I like, like that song? I like the bass line in it, and I just think that the, uh, the, the phrase Sweet Emotion kind of says it all. You know, there is a sweetness to emotions. There is. Do you know that song, and the only reason I know this is because when I picked my car up the following day, it was still playing when I got in it. That was the song I was listening to when I got my third and final drunk driving charge. But it was the live version, not the studio version. Oh, well, there's nothing sweet about getting a DUI. No, but it did lead and to me. You weren't live on TV getting your DUI, no, right? You weren't on no, Cops or right? anything? Yeah, but no. I actually, I look back at that, and that we could start talking about that, and I look back at that moment. That was the, the best thing that ever happened to me was getting arrested for that last time, right? So before we carry on, when you were going to talk about the last time you saw Aerosmith was? Oh, yeah, back in that, the, God, what year was it? This was back uh, right after Toys in the Attic came out. I'm talking way back, like 76, 77, 77. And where was this? Toledo Sports Arena, man. Wow. Yeah, that is one of their former... When tickets were six bucks. Wow. <laughs> the Sports Arena was one of their favorite places to play back in the day, right? Yeah, it was, for a lot of bands. Yes. It's one of my favorite places, venues, to go see a band. I don't know what it was about that place, man. It was old and had some character to it, but... You know, it, the acoustics, I don't know. It was just a nice place to go. Yeah. So where did your fondness for music come from? Gosh. Uh, I don't know. It seems to have been always inherently there. Uh, my dad was a musician. So I was around it, and his band used to come visit or uh, practice in the basement. Uh, and I remember just being intrigued with all the instruments and my dad happened to play drums in that band, but he also played keyboards. So ultimately, I ended up playing both also. And uh, But I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I'm dating myself big time here. But that had a very profound effect on me, um, seeing those guys up doing their thing. It, and the reason we watched it is because we were like the British family. As you know, we came from England. Yeah. We were the British family on the block, and everybody was saying, there's this band from England that's going to be on Ed Sullivan tonight. You should watch it, you know. It's, it's supposed to be something really big, you know. And I remember seeing them, and I remember seeing John Lennon standing in there with that guitar, man. I, oh, man, that's it. And I never looked back, and they're still my favorite band of all the bands I've ever listened to and seen live and had the privilege of uh, playing with some musicians from some of those. And it's... 
it's something that's on, it's an unspoken thing, music. Uh, especially, and I've said this before, there are 12 notes. That's it. 12 notes. Wow. Every song you hear on the radio or on your favorite band does is all constructed and structured around those 12 notes. Every one of them. I did not know that. Of all the conversations we've had, that's something you have not shared before. Does that mean every song has those 12 notes in it? No. Or just some It of just those means notes? that, you know, out of, yeah, out of the plethora of songs, and it's not just the notes that really, you know, do it for me. It's the fact that it takes, it's the human spirit and imagination and creativeness that takes 12 notes and combines them in various ways to come up with these songs that resonate within us, not only in our minds, but in our hearts and become the soundtracks to our lives. I know it's no cliche, but it's so true. Yeah. You know? Isn't it, it, it extraordinary when I hear how many people and or musicians, especially musicians that talk about seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, what that did for him. I mean, The Who, Ozzy, yeah. uh, Ze Zeppelin, you know, Clapton, all of that. It's just on and on. How many people that have been a part of our lives in, in a musical format, from that one performance, what it's done. It's mm -hmm. extraordinary. I don't think I've ever heard anything or anyone, any group, any, any person that it's uh, musically that has had that kind of an impact on people. And we're talking about it again today, right? Sure, I think their legacy will remain as Beethoven's has. Yeah. Uh, I think people will be talking about them in 100, 200 years from now because of what they did. And I don't think that there's, I've ever heard uh, of one band or a successful musician that's never given some sort of credit to these four guys that came from very humble beginnings in Liverpool. So here's, and I, th I think you were with me in uh, the class I've done this. I love doing this, but there, and I'm going to forget the third one. No, I remember it. Bono, Madonna, and John Lennon all did not have mothers. Correct. Growing up. And I remember hearing that because I grew up without one as well, but I remember hearing that, and all three of them took that hurt and found music. To, to cope with that loss effectively, you know, sure. and I think that's a, it's a profound statement. Some, it ahead. is. No, and don't forget that Paul McCartney didn't have a mother growing up either. He lost his mother at 14 to breast cancer. That's around the same time he met John Lennon. I did not know so that. So they had that in common right from the beginning, that they didn't have mothers. Wow. Wow. So let's translate that into what how you ended up coming to racing for recovery then. So you have this God-given ability to play the drums. You're doing that. How did alcohol find a way into your life? And, you know, what was the impact of using alcohol for as long as you did on your life? Well, you know, sadly and ironically, Alcohol found its way into my life through music, through playing out at clubs. I was quite young. 
uh, my dad, he had to take me, <laughs> drop me off and pick me up. And I couldn't even drive yet. And, uh, you know, and I spent my evenings around grown-ups, you know, grown-up musicians. And I looked up to them. I wanted to be like them. And when they drank, they seemed to have a good time. Uh, and I thought, well, I want to have a good time like that, too, you know. I wanted to be one of the guys. And I wanted to fit in when you're you know, young adolescent. Uh, in addition to trying to put your own stamp on being a musician, you know, you want to fit in. It's imperative that you fit in. And, uh, and that's kind of where it started, you know. It's like some guys would go ahead and buy you a drink. Ah, you're old enough. One's not going to hurt you. And then that, as it always happens, especially with alcohol, is very insidious. And that it, it seems to start out slowly in, in, in a way that you don't, it doesn't have that much of an impact at first. And, uh, you know, so the way it impacts, and it's funny is that I knew how to keep it in check when I played. I never got, but it's when I was not up there playing. I had a responsibility on a stage that I didn't have or didn't think I had off stage. So what it impacted in my life offstage is in uh, relationships, mainly. Uh, not only with other people, but with myself as well. Wow. I kind of lost that drive eventually to get things done that I needed. I didn't wake up determined anymore so I could go to bed satisfied. And that actually starts to get more exhausting than if you're doing things that are, you know, of worth. And I, it, you know, there's lots of things I could apologize for. Um, and I'm not going to blame alcohol totally. That would just, that's, you know, an excuse. And, you know, people that have excuses are seldom good at anything else. So um, I will say that through the experience I had with alcohol, and it was a long relationship with alcohol, a long one, decades. And, you know, it, it steals from you, and it blinds you. And the things it steals from you is your sense of worth it steals your heart mm. it steals the love from other people away from you mm. it deflects it at the very least and it it becomes so entrenched in your life that it makes it hard for you to think about doing anything else, even though you know you have other things to do. That's the worst part about it, I think, is losing that part of yourself that was once creative and was vibrant, was effervescent, uh, you know, and you become a shell of the person that you were. 
Uh, so I, I think, like I said the other day, it when you start to look at life through the lens of a bottle, <laughs> nothing's ever in focus, you know. And you know, I there's other things I like other music, and some of my favorite things I like are writers. I like to write and I like to read what good writers do. And a lot of writers hit the bottle too. Hmm. And I thought, well, I'm, yeah, they probably, you know, because it's a great social lubricant, alcohol is. It's the reason a lot of people do it, you know. See that girl over there? I don't have the balls to go over there and talk to her. Give me a couple. Now I do. Would you like to, you know, come home? And um, so it has that going for it. That's the attractive part of it. And with writing, getting back to the writing, I thought, well, gosh, I could be a better writer. Hmm because it will put me in that mindset where I would be able to more freely express myself without having to think it through first, just naturally come out. Mm. But it doesn't. You think it does. Believe me, I have all kinds of pads, <laughs> stacks of them, and I look back on some of the ones, and it's painful to look back on them, at some of the things I've written, stuff I thought was good, only to be seriously disappointed in my own efforts. That's not a good place to be either, being disappointed in your own efforts. What's one thing that's positive that came from all of that self-destructive behaviors and pain with drinking? Do you have one thing that you're like grateful for? Yes. I am grateful that those experiences that I had with alcohol remain in sensitive spots because that means I'm never, ever going to go back there. And it took me, you know, when I came here to Racing for Recovery, it gave me the the opportunity and the time to self-evaluate. You know, that's the, that was huge for me. You know, at my age, most guys don't get that opportunity, you know, and I happened to be in a space where I was able to do that, and I did it. And I came here uh, with a plan in mind, and I was going to see it through to fruition. And but if I hadn't gotten some of the uh, the feedback that I got here, I'm not so certain that I would have been in a mindset that would enable me to to heal and to get better. You know, listening to you now, Tony, and I've had the pleasure of listening to you in some form or another for the 18 months that you've been here, which good on you for staying on the good side for that long with more to come, by the way. Um, what I've seen come out of you, my this is my perception of it, uh, is that the confidence. You know, I asked you if you were nervous earlier, and you're like, yeah, well, who wouldn't be? And I understand that, but I have seen your confidence and the comfort of being self, that's what I've seen the most um, improve, improvement with you. I mean, I, you physically, you've really turned it around. I said that to you when I took your picture for your sobriety, your sober thing that we use on social media. But it's the confidence that I've seen you build and the, um, the comfort you have in just being you. I mean, you're running Thursday night meetings here and there with the ease at which you speak and um, 
the support group meetings, the stuff you said last Friday in the lodging meeting, powerful. Are you aware of the confidence and the, and the comfortability that you have now? You know, that's funny you say that because it is something that I've been thinking about because there's, there's times I don't, but once I get rolling with something, that all kind of dissipates. Mm. That's the way I've always been, though. You know, even going up on stage to play, you know, you get a little nervous. But you know what? That is an awesome place for me to be because that means I'm hitting back where I used to be before everything fell apart. You know, that's my true self. And like, I think I shared last Friday that my friend was telling me he didn't think it wasn't, I looked unhealthy that he said I looked defeated. Yes. And that was a powerful thing for me to hear. And the same thing came out of my mom. You know, you just look like you have given up. Can I, I want to say something yes. to Tony real quick, sorry. No. Uh, hearing that, uh, we, when we're, all of us, when we're in it, we know we look bad. I mean, that's one thing. We all know we look bad. That emotional level to hear defeated and giving up, I heard that last Friday and we're doing it again today. That, that's a whole other level of, of pain that can be turned into an awakening. But the physical part, it's like, yeah, I know I'm not. I don't look and feel good, but that emotional thing of like, I've given up, I look defeated in the eyes of other people, that really resonates with us, you know, just hearing you say that. Yes, and I think the reason behind that is because when you look sick or not well, there's a chance for you to do things to look better. Yes. At least superficially. When you are manifesting on the outside a deep-seated feeling of, I'm not worth what I thought I was worth anymore. That's a whole other, like you said, it is on a whole other level. That takes a lot of work to try to, to patch that up. Now, that's not easy to do. Would, would you say that that is a specialty that Racing for Recovery offers is the ability to heal from that, change that, fix that, that feeling of defeated and giving up? Would you say that that's one of the things that you've learned here at Racing for Recovery is how to, how to change that. Absolutely. And, you know, that is the, probably the biggest take from this that I'm getting. <laughs> and it's going to manifest itself in ways, in a way, for me anyways, I feel like there's a future now. You know, I mean, I'm an older cat now, man. <laughs> but that's okay. You know, I'm, you know, I, I, yes, I've made some mistakes, but on the other hand, I can't wish for those mistakes never to have been, because if I do that, then I'm going to negate the experience of going through those things and the experience I've gained and the wisdom I've gained through having those experiences. When were you cognizant that that was coming to fruition? Like time frame wise, was it, you know, and I, I talk about this periodically, the four quarters of the first year of sobriety. Are you aware of like when that was starting to come to fruition, that mindset that you just described? Yes. And it kind of came in waves. It wasn't linear. Yeah. You know, and I don't know, it's because of listening to you speak on those things that it was a self-fulfilling prophecy hmm. or whether 
there is it's just the truth of the matter. Um, like the first three months, I was on a pretty much a good high. You know, I was really chugging along, feeling great. And then the second three months, I started to question something like, well, maybe not so much question as it was a, a real deep examination. And what I was getting out of that, I didn't like some of the things that I was seeing about myself. You know, just because I reached, you go into sobriety doesn't mean things are going to be all peachy. And it doesn't mean your mindset's going to switch like a, you know, a light switch off and on, you know, and things are just going to be great. And No, you're going to start to go through some clarity. And clarity's great, but you have to be ready for that clarity because there's two sides to it. There's a clarity that you're going to get in seeing where you can get to go, where you're going to go, the clarity in what you need to do to get there, and the clarity of what are you going to do when you get to that point. Then there's the clarity of, shit, I really did that. I really said that. I really looked that way to people. I lost myself. And I... And that comes out of you losing appreciation for life. And life is a damn gift. It really is. It's it's sacred. And to treat it with such disrespect as I did is one of the most hurtful things that I have to confront about myself. The good thing about it is, though, I can change that, and I have. And I'm in the process... It's, life is a process. Everything's a process. It's always going to be a process. You don't just reach a point and then, well, that's it. Now what? It's not that, you know, there's tons of gray areas that you have to be navigated. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have a, a set point that you want to reach. That's important. That's extremely important to have. But along the way to getting there, there are going to be ups and downs, I guess, you know, uh, there are going to be things that need to be taken care of and situations that need to be dealt with past and future. You know, you have to think about it in the sense that, you know, it's funny for me now, it seems like time, my timeline of my life is all kind of culminating into one particular circumstance. This is the best way I can put it. (laughs) And that circumstance is the here and now. And I'm getting better at being able to appreciate the present. Because the future hasn't happened, yes, the past has already happened. Neither one of those really don't exist right now. But this does. I'm sitting here doing this podcast. This is real. <laughs> Don't get any more real than this. Now tomorrow, later on this afternoon, it'll be in the past. Right. You're 64 now? <laughs> is, is that Todd? <laughs> no, sixty-one, man. Sixty-one. Sorry. That's so, okay. Hey, well, you know what? That's, I guess I'll take that. Well, I was thinking of the Beatles song "Remember Me" when I'm sixty-four, whatever. But you're, yeah. uh, so you're seven years more knowledgeable and experienced than I am, and it's interesting. I'm I'm listening to you, and there's some things that you say that I'm like, yeah, I f- I feel that, and then there's some other things that you're saying, and I'm like that's what's coming for me. How do I learn that now? 
and apply it now so I don't have to wait until I'm 64, 61, you know what I'm saying? And that's always having that mindset of I want to learn, I want to learn, who can teach me, who can teach me, and staying as we say a lot in here, staying humble about it, you know, and it's interesting. I, I love talking to you. I, we haven't done this in a while when we haven't done it on camera like this, but right. those conversations that we had when you were here for the first, I don't know, six, seven, eight months or whatever, that's, I always look forward to it because it's stimulating, you know, but I'm, I'm listening to you today with the, the, uh, the success that you've had in here. And when you share in the uh, lodging meetings and I'm like, man, I, I, I'm not feeling what he's talking about yet, but I'm I'm listening and preparing for it because I'm trying to gain what you have now. I I want that now, so I don't have to wait for it. It's kind of like, and it's interesting. You're you and I are older than a lot of the people that are here, and I'm hoping that they are listening to older, the younger kids are listening to us with the same mindset that I'm still listening to you at, and trying to show that. Listen, man. Listen to some people, though, you can learn from that. So I appreciate just talking to you again, you know? No, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Um, uh, likewise, I, I hope that some of the younger people do take some of the things I say. Not that I'm a wise old sage. Yeah. I'm just saying that there are some certain things that you can learn from the elder generation that will be able, you know, can help you through the humps and bumps and the obstacles that you, that you are sure to uh, uh, endure. At some point, right? You know? Yes, you will. You know, it's like some people, like, they want the lesson before the experience. Right. And it doesn't work that way. It does not work. I can't tell you in a way that's going to supersede you going through the experience. But what I, what I hope you get out of is that you're going to be better prepared you know, because you're going to have to make sacrifices in life to get what you want. That's just the way it is. You know, you, f you think you're going to get through life without having to make a sacrifice. You are sadly mistaken. And it's not only, but the good part about the sacrifice thing for me is that you get to choose what sacrifices you want to make. Generally speaking, you do. Um, because if you don't make a decision on what you feel needs to be sacrificed in order to attain what you know needs to be attained for yourself, something else is going to make that choice for you. So. I, want to, I want to switch gears for a second because <laughs> you played soccer as a kid, right? Yes. And you were playing over in, in England. It's when I went to school there, yes. So how, how have you taken that love of sport with you being in racing for recovery, utilizing the fitness aspect of what we're doing here, how how has that helped you, not only physically but mentally, emotionally, and it's, and spiritually as well? Well, one of the first things I did when I got here, I went to Walmart and bought a soccer ball. I didn't own one for years, hadn't touched one for years. And it just gave me myself, it gave me, it was like a security blanket, something from the past, something I did I was decent at. My dad was also a hell of a soccer player. And uh, so I grew up with that too, not only the music from him, but also you know, the, the sport of soccer. And I tell you, when we lived in England, I did my, not, or my fourth grade year there, and I did my sophomore year of high school over there. And... 
obviously those two experiences were very different because right. of the age different but i remember going to my first soccer game football we call it right and uh it was something man the energy is just incredible and i know you can try to uh we have american football and baseball games and all that you know but there's just something about over there with that everybody singing and everybody together you know it was just really and a unique experience and uh so as i got older and over there now what we used to do to practice over there is we take tennis balls and kick them against the wall and you try doing that with the tennis ball with just your foot yeah you know trying to control it yeah that's how I, those guys get so good and you know and, and, and over there that's just that's it soccer pretty much and cricket you know track and field and you know and the other olympic sports but that's it as far as a national pastime man football is it soccer so i took that being as you know fit when i was young like that and developing the coordination when i got here that was one of the in my plan i wanted to get back you know in shape again and then wanted you know even though i was older and i'd put my body through hell for years and years i was determined and you know, I'm more than happy with the results, man. You know, again, it was a combination of sheer determination and environmental opportunity. You know, I came here, I saw the gym. Mm -hmm. I already knew what you guys are about. And uh, years ago, I knew this about you guys, you know, and I'd seen some things on the news. I thought, man, I'm... That would be a good place for me, I think. Mm -hmm. As you know, as everything that's good for me in my life, I put it off, <laughs> put it off, and right. put it off. You know, and I don't say things that you know. It's that. That's not. It's you know, not being honest with yourself. But you know, sometimes you have to reach a certain level, where you know the suffering becomes worse than the action that needs to be taken. Hmm. Then you're gonna take some action. You're gonna have to. How, being, being at the age that, that you are, and taking the action as you said that you have done. How has that increased your empathy for others? Whether it's others that are coming into this, the empathy of your family, you know, you know, kids, former wives, whatever. How has all of this, and at the age you are, how has it enhanced your empathy towards humanity, I guess? Well, I noticed a guy that came in the gym a couple weeks ago, older gentleman, you know, seriously overweight, knee braces, walking with a walker mm -hmm. in a gym. Wow. And I watched him. The entire time I was there, I thought, man, that dude, that took a lot of fortitude for him to come in here and courage. Mm. It really did. Mm. I know what it's like to walk into a gym, and, you know, when you're not out of shape. Well, when you're out of shape, you know, and I wasn't in a walker, right? <laughs> you know. Right. And he came in, and he was doing it, man. And it just made me feel so... It brought a lot of not only joy, but I, I felt for the guy, man. 
And I went over, and I thought, it's imperative for me to go over and talk to him. And I did. I said, man, I'm really happy to see you here. I, and I asked him about his story. I wanted to know, you know, why he was here, what he was doing, you know. And um, he was so thankful for that. He really it made him feel better being there. It made him feel like he belonged. And it made him feel like somebody cared, you know, and somebody who's been there doing it for a while would actually take some time. You know, because it reminds me of when I was younger with musician guys, when my dad would take me around to see various bands, you know, and these guys, they were very kind to me and would give me albums and stuff that I would not, ordinarily wouldn't even look at because I didn't know the names of some of the musicians and that. So and I never forgot those those guys. And the same thing when I would teach, you know, I, when students would come in, I was the same way with them. I'd try to be kind to them and, and put them at ease. And, um, you know, and as far as the empathy, I, I guess most of my empathy now towards my, my ex-wife and, my, and even my children is that they put up with my shit. I feel bad for them hmm. because I wasn't the type of... Uh, of a husband or father I probably should have been. I thought I was. But, uh, you know, and it wasn't all just because of drinking either. Like I said, you know, you, I didn't just come here to stop drinking. Dan asked me one of the first questions he asked me is, uh, you know, why, why are you here, which is a standard question. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want to know why. I want to know why I keep sabotaging my life. You know, I mean, my ex-wife was one I chased through high school, man. My last couple of years, when I, we came back from England, she was a, one of the first girls I saw, man. I was like, I got to have her. Hmm. And I, it, it took me a while, but I got her. And I couldn't believe it. But ultimately, you know, I screwed that up. And, uh, you know, and the kids deserved better, for sure. So, you know, from there, all I can do is to maintain the forward momentum that I have going and, you know, and as the old cliche goes, you know, the old axiom, you know, actions speak louder than words, you know, so that's what I'm doing. I mean, going to the gym and looking in shape is one thing. I mean, it's really just an outward manifestation of an inward resolve for me. When I go in and lift a weight, I'm actually overcoming something, Mm -hmm. inertia, you know, in mass. So I look at it that way, same way with any sort of obstacle that's going to come my way. I'm going to have to move it. You know, they say go around it. You know, you can, but sometimes I'm stubborn. Everybody's different. You know, they deal with their obstacles in different ways. Some people blast right through them. Some people run into them and fall back and fall down and get up and try again, you know. Some people find ways to get around them. It depends what the obstacle is and what the person's, you know, psychological makeup is I suppose but um, you know I'd like to think that I had empathy you know the thing is being here it's peeled back the layers of um, of like a defense mechanism that I put in place Uh, I don't care what you think I'll drink if I want. I don't care. Well, just deal with what I said. It's not that big of a deal. And, you know, so what if I wasn't there when I said I was going to be there? Did it would it happen to you? You're still here, aren't you? know, that kind of thing. Well, then you start getting the feedback, you know, and you get defensive. 
And then that starts spilling over into other areas of your life. You get defensive about everything, you know? I mean, somebody's writing a check in line in front of you. You're like, why the hell do you have to write a goddamn check? You know? I mean, why is that bothering you? <laughs> somebody's writing a check. You know? Is that, what's that doing to you? I was, it's like I was... Uh, I wasn't giving other people the same amount of leeway that I was giving myself. Wow. So that had to change. And I, I will tell you that I've done a 180 being here. Totally. Hmm. Not only has it been through me, though, it's been through because of the people I met. They, you know, people that probably don't even know that they've been, you know, haven't had an impact on me, impact on my life and impact on me getting through. And, you know, when I'm not feeling like we all have those days, you know, you just don't want to put forth the effort sometimes. But I run into somebody from here, man. There's always a smile generally, and there's always something positive to say. And it just kind of lifts me up out of that. So that puts it on me to pay that forward. So if I see somebody, I try to, you know, respond in kind. It's part of, I use the term uh, obligated. I, I can't speak for anybody else. I, I felt obligated to, to give it back. You know, and I know a lot of people saying, I want to help people. And it's like, I, I understand that, but I wasn't focused on helping people. I still don't even think I help people today. I mean, I may have uh, a map and, and I am a guide on that map to find the treasure, but the, everybody that comes in here, you're doing it themselves. I'm not helping, I'm not carrying somebody on that map. But when I put this together, I had a sense of, man, a lot has been given to you, dude. You got to somehow give it back. That was the only reason this thing was even created was I felt obligated to give what had been so graciously given to me and let somebody else have a piece of it. You know, if you got, if you've been given a vegan cake and you're sitting around and there's 10 people that are starving and they only gave you the cake, you don't eat it yourself. Exactly. You have some, but you share it with everybody else and let them get that. And that's how I felt with, with everything that racing for recovery was is and will be it's like we are obligated to give that back whether it's talking to a new guy in the gym you know sharing your story on a podcast it's like you can i feel that we can't just take something and hoard it it won't somehow that's going to get taken away in some capacity but that constant receive give receive give and that flow that just keeps everything rolling yeah i'm a firm believer if you don't use the energy that you've been given that it will just dissipate yeah. and find somewhere else to go that will be a better use for it. Agreed. And so, you know, like when I was young, when I first started playing drums, for instance, I wanted to play so bad. I was, I'm left-handed. Well, for some things I'm right, but whatever. But so my dad set them up right-handed, the drums. So when I'd go around this way, I kept leading with my left hand, wanting to go this way. So I was constantly nailing my knuckles on the ends of the cymbals on the edges and on the rims of the drums, the metal rims. And it hurt. 
And I was busting my knuckles open, man. So finally, and I didn't realize at the time, just starting out, that it's because I was leading with my left hand. I figured that out later. But I was going into the house. I remember I was taking the cotton balls, and I was taping them with surgical tape on my knuckles. I wasn't stopping playing. Right. I just kept at it, yep. you know, regardless. <laughs> Until my mom was starting to complain about where all the cotton balls are going, you know. <laughs> and um, so what I got out of that was that, you know, sometimes – you you sweat in peace so that you don't bleed as much in war. Wow. And I was just thinking about that the other day. You know, that for me represents the kind of person that I want to be again. That kid, you know, didn't give up, would not give up. And uh, I got sidetracked, man. You know, and I needed something to uh, put me back. And I had to take, like I said, I had to take action, man. So I made the phone call. You know, and I know it's starting to sound like an infomercial for Racing Recovery, but Sorry. man, what it is is a real life experience from somebody who, who needed this and it worked for them. And the, from the very first, from the very beginning, that's what I, you know, just making that phone call, man. And I remember them saying, well, I just wanted to come up and check it out, yeah. you know, that's all. And uh, I must have talked to Helena, I think. Hmm. I must, maybe. And uh, I don't know if she was here then or not. She was. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But I told her, you know, I said, the place I was at, I had to go to detox. You know, that was embarrassing in and of itself. You know, this whole thing was a big embarrassment for me. Now it's not. Right. But at the beginning it was. But, you know, I come out of detox and... I wanted to come here from there because they said, you got to, we need a plan from you. What are you going to do? You know, they wouldn't let me come here. They wouldn't let me call from there. Well, we got this list for you. So I had to, but I went there once and this isn't what I want. And I kept, this place kept in the back of my mind. You know, I heard somebody else say they were going to come here from the detox place. And I thought, man, that's the place, that's that place. You know, that's, that's what hit me in the, you know, my, when I was in there. That's, that's the place. So I called up and I said, yeah, you know, I'd like to come in and check it out. And he goes, well, we can get you in here. And I think it took him, she said it was like, yeah, it must have been a couple of weeks. Really? And I think, well, it wasn't, you know, a matter of life or death. You know, I mean, it was just, I don't know. I think she just thought I was somebody to come in. I didn't let her know I was like wanting to be a client or anything like that. Okay. I just wanted to come in and talk to some people. Maybe she t- took it as being, you know, a person who was maybe doing an article or something, okay. something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, Is what I'm thinking. Okay. So, but I, obviously when I got here, that all changed once I got talking to Dan. Dan had me filling out paperwork, and I was like, well, wait a minute, man. <laughs> I, I just got here. I'm just talking, you know. And, you know, I was so bad at that point, I could not fill the paperwork out very well. I was I remember shaking, hearing that. And I had to ask Helene, if she, could you please help me? You know? Wow. And I made the excuse that my hand was injured, you know. And uh, wow. so from there, man, you know, I just made the decision. I had to make the decision, you know, were you going to come here and stay mm-hmm. or are you not? And I couldn't keep driving back and forth from where I'm at, from where, where I'm from, so it's too far every day. So, I, okay, I think I need to get away from all that back there anyways. I thought, I'll come here for, I'll give it 30 days, dry out, man. That's all I need. And uh, 
was here for 30 days, and I thought, you know, I kind of like these meetings, man. These, there's people that feel the same as I do, going through some of the same stuff. Because addiction can make you feel very lonely, you know. And some of it's from self-isolation, sure. for sure. But sometimes that isolation can get even worse because you don't think anybody even wants to be around you anymore. So you don't even make an effort to be around mm-hmm. other people. So this kind of, you know, gave me an opportunity to be around other people. I kind of needed that to be surrounded like that. And if you recall, I didn't really say anything first month. I mean, I really didn't. I just listened. I wanted to really get a good firm grasp of what was going on here. And I'm glad I did that. And, um, you know, it seems like that 30 days and hit 60, you know, and I was like, I'm going to do 90, you know, and, and I'd be talking with my roommates about stuff like this, you know, like, that's a good idea. I think I'm going to do the same thing. So we would support one another. Right. By, you know, talking about these things and what we were going through here and how it was affecting each other. And, and so it steamrolled from there, man. And it just got to the point where I thought that this is where I need to be. Hmm. You know, it's not something that, you know, you can say it's a, it's a choice, but sometimes choices are funny in that they don't appear to be a choice as much as they appear to be a decision. And you can hash that out if you want. Is, is there a difference between a choice and a decision? I, sometimes there is. Yeah. Sometimes choices are, are made based on the information at hand and maybe... You know, the other is more of a, a situational thing. I've never thought about it that way. I think you know. you're, I concur with that. You're right. How have, how have you seen Racing for Recovery grow since you've been here? What's evolved? You know, that is the thing that is most impressive to me. Uh, what I see evolving is that it's open to people's uh, ideas Mm. about and it's not necessarily somebody because I have this idea here you go take a look at it look it seems to be more of an organic thing which is what I like Uh, I seem to operate under that kind of an environment much better and I see the building there's plans to make another building there's plans to bring on more people where they're needed to help, you know, the, the, the number of people that are coming through here is starting to really increase. And I see now that I've been here for a while, there was, I was within a, with a group of people, and some of them are here working. <laughs> and uh, it, it gives me a sense that, of, of, that this is not only, you know, rehabilitation for recovery but it's also a place to to find other people of like-mindedness and you know that the only thing how can I put this it's not only addiction that is the uh uh you know, the common denominator with people here, it's other interests too. You know, there are other things going on here. This is a pretty dynamic place. You know, people might not, you know, fully understand that or or think of it that way, but it is. I mean, 
like first I ran my first 10k the 20th anniversary of it yep. Saturday and I hadn't run a 10k since I was in the army now, that, was, that was a long time ago yeah. man and I didn't even train for it I, you know, I still hit the gym all the time, like I do, but I hadn't trained aerobically for running or anything mm-hmm. like that. And I thought for sure I was going to just, I'll do two miles and I was going to puff out and then walk the rest of the way. And uh, much to my surprise, man, I kept going, kept going. It was that inner resolve again, you know. And it starts with getting the addiction thing under control understanding myself and why that even occurred in the first place and these things have positive effects that go far beyond just self-awareness mm. you know now it's like everything's coming together physically for me i mean everybody i know my age are on some sort of blood pressure medication or you know cholesterol or, or something like that i'm on nothing i had a boy fact i got rid of my blood pressure medication since i've been here i don't have to take it anymore the doctor told me she said oh you don't you don't need it anymore i said i know man you know just to do that so what i feel like happened here for me personally is that i've gotten strong in body and strong in mind and strong in heart Hmm. because you know i i've never felt someone some of the love I've felt since I've been, you know, since I've been here, you know, it's been a long time since somebody told me they loved me. Wow. A very, very long time. And, to, to, and I, sometimes I don't even know how to react, you know, and I, and I get chided about that in a, a playful way. You know, Tony has a hard time saying it back. Tony has a hard time giving a hug back, you know. So I don't have a hard time anymore. I did at first, but... You know, and it wasn't, I wasn't, you know, suspicious of ulterior motives. It was just, it was, I had allowed myself to become so divorced from knowing what it's like to be loved because we all want to be loved the way we love, Hmm. you know, and it takes a while for that, that part of you to open up to that again, you know, and for me, it's starting to do that and that arguably could be the best thing that's happening to me, that ability to, to love again, I think. Wow. Dude, that was a hell of an infomercial. Um, is there any final words you want to say that you think somebody needs to hear about what you've done or what Racing for Recovery is? I think that I I hope that anybody who's watching this who hasn't had the chance to come here and has it in the back of their mind to do so, hmm. I hope that you act on it. I hope you at least drop by for a meeting and see what everything's about here because that's all I did, and it changed my life. As I said in the meeting the other day, this has been the most productive year and a half I've had in a long, long, long time, and... You know, and it's that in itself is addictive, you know, just to keep moving forward, man. It gets you want to keep doing it over and over and over again. And I'm sure that there's people out there that that, uh, feel that and want that. It's a great feeling to have. Um, I would implore people 
to not be afraid to face anything that they feel is more is too powerful to face like because people have a tendency to um put their own self-exaggeration on things and things can appear overwhelming and out of hand but there are people here that can help you that's that's the thing about it man once you get that under control the 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 stop drinking the stop drug that that's just a byproduct correct you know the root cause needs to be addressed otherwise that you're just stopping something that's is, what makes this yeah. whole thing uh, different, unique, and successful. It's not about just stopping. You have to figure out why you started in the first place. Exactly. No one had ever done that for me before. No one ever asked me. I mean, I was trying to figure it out myself. I want to read this. I've been thinking, this is twice you brought this up, and I don't normally do this, but I'm going to. On the back of our Cleveland book, um, picture of me with my Michael Jackson jacket awesome. on there. Where I'm coming from, in my work as a licensed addictions counselor, I have had many clients tell me that in all the years they have sought help and tried to kick their addiction, no one has ever asked the questions that I ask. And I kept hearing that. Um, this was 2009 when this thing came out, so I've been doing this for seven or eight years at the time. And the more I heard that, I thought how sad that is, but how I knew I was onto something. That, that was the testament of, I know where we're going. It's why isn't anybody asking these questions? That's what I wanted someone to ask me. And I never, no one ever asked me. So I just started asking myself that and turning it into this. You've, I think every person that's come in here at some point has said, wow, no one's ever asked me that. And that is the biggest compliment that I ever receive in here. It's like, I know. Well, there's a rawness here that I enjoy. There's a, there's a streety approach, you know, as well as having the benefit of trained clinicians. Yes. And you put those two things together. You know, that's my favorite music is like that. Trained musicians, but they have this approach that's very raw. Yep. It resonates with me. I think it resonates with everybody. Because I think everybody has that. They, people want structure, but they don't necessarily want to be told what to do. It's you know in a way that makes it seem like there's jail time involved. You know, and whatever you know, that's the best way I could put it. But I've heard that sometimes people will say, "Well, you guys don't have a structured program." I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" This is structure from the time people wake up till they go to bed, but it's the way they want to live their structure, not how I'm going to tell them how to live it. That's what makes our structure structurable, if that's even a yeah. word. Well, right? You know? Yeah, there's routine. Yes. There's routine here, and that is, I really feel that is vitally important to success, especially early on. Get up, move, quit taking naps. We are programmed to move. Yes. It's in our DNA. Agreed. You know, I mean, I sometimes see people taking naps. And I thought, man, I, I don't know how you do it. Sometimes I wish I could. I can't, though. Especially being here. I could before. I didn't even want to get out of bed in the morning. But now, man, I wake up on my own early 
And I may not get out and run, but I'm going to get up and I'm going to damn well do something. And it's going to be something that's going to set the tone for the rest of the day so that when I do the bigger things, I'm, that mindset's going to be all prepared. My body's going to be prepared and I'm going to do it. And I'm, like I said, I'm going to go to bed that night satisfied. Tony, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks for doing this, man. Always, Todd. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Share this young man's story, really, even though he's 64. <laughs> Share his story. Uh, if you're struggling, give Racing for Recovery a call. Check out more podcasts, support group meetings, whatever you want to do, racingforrecovery.org. We'll see you next time. Thanks.